0: In our Bible study last week, as we began the um, book of 1 Corinthians, we took a a, a historical look of the city of Corinth, wherein Paul came to uh, begin this church that we are studying about. We talked about how Paul ended up there and what he was faced with when when he arrived. We talked about how the church came into existence And Paul the Apostle spent one and a half years in the city establishing that church, the second longest that he spent in any of the places that he would go, uh, setting those guys up. And then he left the church and he moved back into the region of Asia Minor where he would then go to Ephesus and he would spend three years with the church there uh, um, developing and building them up. And sometime during that three-year period while Paul was at Ephesus, He receives word, um, a letter is brought to him most likely by the man Sosthenes whom we studied last week uh, that Paul mentioned in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians that there were some problems within the church, that they needed help, that there was issues that were going on there. And it was beyond the ability of the local church body there to address the things that needed to be addressed. They needed Paul uh, and his authority to address them. And so Paul wrote this letter that we are studying After he left Corinth for a season and now seeking to correct and make adjustments to set things the way that they're supposed to be. And really, there are uh, three reasons why the Apostle Paul uh, felt it necessary to take pen in hand and to write this letter to the church. And so, the first of those reasons, um, and it's the first thing that Paul addresses, it's what we get into tonight, is is that he received um, a, 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 a testimony from a woman that was in the church and her household that there were divisions that were going on in the church. And it was the type of divisions that would cause the church to be fragmented to a point where it would become unaffected. And so the church would lose its witness, it would lose its light, and it was enough that Paul felt that he needed to address it and write to them. The second reason why the apostle wrote this letter to the Corinthians is because there was a very serious sin issue within the church, just one particular thing that nobody had uh, the courage to deal with. It was very awkward, but it needed to be dealt with because again, uh, the church was having a potential of great damage if this went unchecked and uh, undealt with. And so he wrote to address that issue. And then number three, the third reason is that when the correspondence came to Paul, There was a series of questions that they also sent to him. They said, how do we deal with this? What's the uh, concept of Christian marriage and how does that work out? What what do we do at the communion table and how does that work? And they just had a whole bunch of questions about things that they needed clarity on. And so Paul addresses each of the things that he uh, was asked by them so as to bring clarity to the things that they had need of. And so he, he, he feels compelled. And he writes this letter to the church to address these things. And so as we looked at last week, he gave them a very brief encouragement. He reminded them that they are held by God, that God is going to complete the work that he's begun within them, uh, that they're, they're in his grip, but yet there's big problems that need to be addressed. And so after that brief time of encouragement, now Paul gets right into it and takes them to task concerning the things that were going on there. And so we resume our study in verse 10 of chapter one. Uh, Paul speaks to them and he says, now I beseech you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very typical way for Paul to shift gears. When in all of his letters, he goes from the encouragement portion of what he has to say to now the instructional portion of what he has to say, he'll turn it and say, now, now that we've we've set the tone for where you're at, now these are the things that have to happen. And the way that he addresses them is quite interesting because he says, I beseech you, not a command, but uh, as a brother that would come alongside and compel them to give heed to what he's gonna say. But it says that he does it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea behind that, by by pleading the name and attaching it to this exhortation for them to listen to, is what he's saying is that I'm speaking this to you as though Jesus himself were speaking this to you. And so he's pulling an authority that, that supersedes the authority of any of the leaders that were there in Corinth and also supersedes his own authority, even as the apostle and founder of the church. And he takes it to the level of, listen, this is the word of the Lord Jesus to you concerning the things that you're going through. And so by the name of Jesus Christ, as though it was him saying it to you, I beseech you, and here's what it is, that you all speak the same thing or the same word and that there be no divisions. The word is schisms or fragments or segments or clefts or among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. The idea is that in the way that you think, that you are all thinking on the same page or the same terms, and also in the same judgment, or that is that you come to the same conclusions. And so he's asking them, he's exhorting them, that they wouldn't be fragmented in the way that they look at life and look at spiritual things but that they would be perfectly joined together and on the same page unified in the way that they think spiritually and then also in the conclusions that they come to when they bring the thoughts to their proper end. He's beseeching them to come into a place of unity. And so that's the command is that you unify what is currently fragmented. And here's the reason why he gives them this exhortation in verse 11. He says, for it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them, which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions, the word is arguments, disputes among you. And so Paul says, I've heard word and here's my source. And he says, and and I can quote them. This is someone in your midst, someone of you that's told me of these things. And so this I say, verse 12, here's the manner of these contentions or arguments, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Or, if you want to put it in the modern terms, I am a Methodist, I am a Presbyterian, I am Reformed, I am a Calvary Chapelite, you know, and and, and, and there's no such thing as a Calvary Chapelite, by the way, I just <laughs> threw that in there so that you would know what I was talking about, you know. But basically what was happening within the church there is that there was a sectarian split amongst the Christians wherein they were attaching their allegiance to a human leader and they were placing an overemphasis upon the place of that leader in the appointment of God in order to bring the church to where it is supposed to be. And that the the, the outcome of that um, allegiance to those leaders is that it was causing division is that it wasn't allowing them to think in the same way or draw those thoughts to proper conclusions because eventually they would come to a point where they couldn't agree because that maybe there was a difference in the style of leadership that was going on between the two of them and so paul kind of gives to them um the 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 source of this division is that the people were placing their footing the footing of their faith upon human teachers rather than on the person of christ himself and so he carries that then to the next logical place and he asks three rhetorical questions to which the answer just in case you, you don't figure it out when we read them is no to all three of them. Um, and, and the purpose of these rhetorical questions is so that they might, in hearing them, realize the folly of what it is that they are doing. And so he asked, first of all, in verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Is the gospel or the person of Christ or the resurrected Lord in such a state now that he no longer physically exists as a personage and as an authority and a power? But rather what he's done is that he has now been divided or split up in such a way wherein he has given a part of himself to each, um, you know, distinct leader. And now your place is to find the leader that you most resonate with. And that's your picture of Christ. Or that's what you consider Christ to be. Is Christ divided? It's a foolish thing to even think about. Of course not. He's holy. He's one. He's God. He's ever seated at the right hand of the Father. He is who he is. The second question he asks, was Paul crucified for you? In other words, if you are in the camp of those at Corinth that ascribe me to be your pastor or your spiritual leader, the one whom you are looking to for guidance and a good example, was I crucified for you? Did I lay down my life for your sins? Am I, Paul is asking, able to save you? Through my ministry and what I've done, can I be the sacrifice and propitiation for your sins? The answer, of course, is no. There's one sacrifice for sins forever wherein the child of God is perfected. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus only. And so you couldn't be be, um, saved because of what I've done for you. And then the third question, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, baptism is a symbolic unifying of the two, is that when we're baptized into the name of Jesus, we are dying in the water and we are becoming spiritually unified with Christ. He's coming into our life now, and the life that we're living from the time that we come out of the waters is a life that's empowered by Christ himself. And Paul is saying, is it even possible that you could be baptized in such a way that I could come into your life? Is it possible for an extension of my spirit to be in you in such a way that you would someday become a replica of me or of my faith in some way? if that could happen at all. And of course, the answer to all of those things is no and no and no. And and then Paul even takes it a step further and he says in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas, besides I know not whether I baptized any other for christ sent me not to baptize and we'll pause right there and we'll finish the second half of the verse in just a moment but he says listen i took heed and went the extra mile that even while i was among you that if there was baptizing to be done i let the other guys that were with me do the baptizing so that you could never attach the act of baptism in some way and say well i was baptized by paul who started all those great churches and somehow that makes me superior we read that even Jesus didn't baptize his disciples. It says in John chapter four, verse two, that Jesus baptized not, but his disciples did the baptizing. And again, for the same reason, lest some element of spiritual pride would come up in a person and they would say, well, I was baptized by Jesus. And so I have, Paul said, no. He's like, listen, you guys are are completely missing the mark in what you have given yourself to in, in all of these things. And he says that my reason for not baptizing you was intentional so as not to make myself the emphasis among you. He says, as he finishes verse 17 there, he says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he says, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And so the problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing forthrightly with them right at the onset of this epistle is that there were divisions and schisms and arguments taking place among them. And the reason for those divisions was because of the exaltation of human leaders and the neglect of the person of Christ within their lives. Now there is in every one of us who is fallen, a tendency to gravitate towards a human leader or a human example is that we see someone that maybe has progressed to a place in their relationship with Christ or their walk with the Lord that we admire and we look at them in in some way as an example of what it is that we hope someday to be. Now that's a natural thing and that's not even necessarily a bad thing there is a benefit to doing that because we can learn from those who are further along in their walk with Christ. We can get an example of how spiritual things flesh out in the real world by looking at someone's life. But the danger that that carries that we can also be um, susceptible to is that we can begin to pattern our lives after the life of that leader or that person that we're looking at And instead of looking at Christ, look at them. Now, if you could picture in one moment, each one of us or every Christian in the entire body of Christ that's alive on the earth or that has ever lived, and you could picture Christians as a fraction, for a moment, any fraction, you can uh, make one up in your own mind, just say like one half or one quarter or, or, or 50, one thousandths, whatever you want, just a fraction where you have a numerator and then you have a denominator underneath e- that. Now in a proper fraction, the numerator is always less than the denominator because you're showing that, that, that the numerator is the part of the whole. And so if you could imagine every Christian for a moment as a fraction, What you are, what I am, is that we are the numerator. That's the actual portion of substance that we contain. The denominator of any fraction is whatever it is that we hope to become. And so we recognize that as the numerator that we're incomplete, that we're not quite what we're gonna be or what we hope to be, we're a part of that. And so you have the numerator, that's where we are. And then the denominator is what we hope to be. become someday now the common denominator of all Christians is can only be and must be Jesus Christ he is the only common denominator that God has prescribed that you and I would say that's the measure of what one day I'm hoping that I can equal out to be now the ironic thing about that is that we are complete and incomplete at the same time is that God looks at us in our finished state and he sees they're complete in Christ Jesus. I look at them and I see my son. I see every time I see one over one. That fraction can be reduced down to one. There's communion. There's singularity in that person's existence. But on this side of things while we're growing in grace and we're being challenged daily and we're crucifying the self-life and all of those things that are taking place within us while we're being sanctified, we recognize that we're not yet what we one day will be or what God sees us as. And so he's the denominator and he must be the common denominator for all Christians. He's the one who saved us and he's the one that gave us an example and he's the one that has power to change us and he's the one that's doing the work within us. Now, what was taking place in the Corinthian church and what we also have the tendency to do is this, and watch it, is that we can take a human leader and the leaders that they were taking were good leaders apollos was an excellent orator he was a spirit-filled man paul the apostle we know who he was cephas is a reference to peter the apostle peter we know who he was and so these were good leaders but what they were doing is that they were changing out the denominator of jesus christ as what they were seeking to become and seeking to follow and they were replacing it with that leader so they were saying, well, I am this, but someday I hope to be this, and it would be Paul, or it would be Apollos in all of these things. Now, as soon as a Christian does that, whether it was the Corinthians or whether it's us, that we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto some human example of the Christian life, then what happens is that the whole Christian life begins to turn sideways. Because the questions that we begin to ask ourselves are, how do I become more like him or her? How do I um, pray the way they pray? How did they become the way that they are? And what disciplines and things can I work into my life so that one day my faith can look like them? And so we ask them the question, is how did you become like this? What books did you read? What people, preachers did you listen to? Tell me your testimony and how you got saved. Tell me the things that I can be praying for to happen in my life as according to what happened in your life so that one day I can hopefully become like you we ask the question, how do they handle various issues and go through things? How do they handle and look at marriage? How do they handle and look at theology? What do they think about um, you know, things of the Holy Spirit or things concerning end times or things concerning redemption? What do they think about church government? You, I mean, you could just go on and on and on and you're patterning what you are as a Christian after what you see in someone else. Now, there are great consequences that result in any life of a person that becomes that way, whether you're looking at the leader and not at Jesus himself. And those consequences are that, first of all, you greatly diminish the value of the whole person, It is that when your denominator, what you're hoping to become, is less than just Jesus, then you have greatly diminished the potential value of that whole because even if you attain to become like the person that you're trying to become you are still only a fraction of what god intends your life to be and so you've greatly diminished the value of what god wants to make you another consequence is that you automatically as soon as you do that you make yourself incompatible with most of the body of christ because when a leader becomes your denominator then your fraction becomes incompatible with other fractions. You remember, I'm going through this with my kids now as they learn uh, you know, mathematics and they're multiplying and dividing and adding and subtracting fractions. The goal is always to find a common denominator. Once you have a common denominator in a fraction, then you can do whatever you want with it. But if you get a fraction where there is no common denominator, then that's a headache. You see, and what happens is that when we make a leader the denominator of our life, then automatically we're gonna be schismatic with someone else in the body of Christ because eventually we're gonna come to a point where it's impossible for us to see eye to eye. We cannot agree on these things because the numbers don't work out. It doesn't work, it becomes... Frustrating. That's where schisms, that's where divisions come from. And so you're primed for division in that because not everyone can have the same common denominator as me if I'm following after a man or a woman or a spiritual example. Another consequence of it is that you are grieving and frustrating the Holy Spirit of God. And the reason you're grieving and frustrating Him is because He is sent on a mission to conform you and I into the image of Christ, not into the image of another leader. And so when the direction of our life is headed towards one thing and the direction that God wants to take our life is something altogether, then we're frustrating the purpose of God within our life and we're short circuiting the Holy Spirit within us. We are also at the same time cutting off his power within our life because he will not share his glory with any man. He will not bless or honor our attempts to try to become like someone else within the body of Christ. Jesus said, when the spirit comes, he will testify of me. He will take of mine and he will show it unto you. That is the purpose of the Holy Spirit of God. And he will not bless our pursuit to become like someone else within the body of Christ. Another consequence of this is that once we do this, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment because inevitably eventually every man will fail there is no perfect man there is no perfect spiritual person there's no perfect pastor or apostle even peter we see him being rebuked we see him denying christ we see paul at times having to repent of things and coming to a place in his own life where he would say that i am the chief of sinners and anytime we place our faith or our hope in someone To be that example for us, we're setting ourselves up to be scandalized because it's only a matter of time before that person lets you down and what happens to your faith then? For many, their faith becomes shipwrecked and they say the whole thing is a sham and they no longer follow because of what they saw in someone else. The other thing is that that's also very unfair to the person that you're making the denominator of your life. It's very unfair to them. Because once you realize that there are only a 700 and that Jesus is a 70,000, then there's going to be a reaction in you towards that person that they don't deserve. They didn't set you up for that, <laughs> and you did it yourself. And, and that's what happens in the body of Christ, which because I don't go to that church anymore. I don't follow that guy anymore. He was supposed to call. He was supposed to be care, to care. He forgot my name, He didn't come visit. Listen. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're called to follow and serve. And so what Paul is saying to them is that you guys in Corinth need to find the one and only common denominator and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now we can't control that for anybody else, but we can control it for ourselves. And Paul says that we're to get our eyes on Jesus, get them off of whoever, whatever denomination, whatever theological uh, you know, position that you have on things and you get your eyes on Jesus Christ. That's where our eyes, that's where our lives are supposed to be built. Now, Paul knew, he was no dummy, that there needed to be some kind of motivation in order for them to do this. I don't know if, if anyone has ever asked you uh, um, you know, to stop doing something that is spiritually very important to you. But typically when someone who is in a position like the Corinthians were, where they've really placed their emphasis on a particular leader, if you go to that person and you say, you know, you should really stop doing that. I know you really like listening to, you know, such and such on the radio, but you really shouldn't like him so much. You should get your eyes off of him. Uh, what does that do inside of you? You go, that's, that's, that's my attachment to God. You know, what do you think you're messing with here? And now Paul is saying, what is he trying to do? Is he trying to have a spiritual monopoly? I like Apollos. I like Peter. What does he mean I got to get my eyes off of them? So what Paul does is he does what any parent would do, is that he basically gives them now three reasons between this point, verse 18, all the way stretching through the end of chapter three. And We're not going to go that far tonight. We're only going to go through verse five of chapter two, just so that you don't get too nervous on me, Uh, you know, but, 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 but really, Paul's discussion concerning these divisions stretches all the way to the end of chapter three. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna give to them three reasons why it's in their best interest to lose the divisions and to get their eyes on Jesus Christ. And those three reasons are these. Number one, because if you don't, then you will forfeit the power of God within your life. You will not have the power of God in your life the way God wants you to have the power of God within your life. The second thing that you will forfeit is the wisdom of God within your life. There is a wisdom that comes from God that is very beneficial and very profitable to you, but if you don't get this right within your life, then you're gonna completely miss out on that wisdom and you're gonna live your life according to a counterfeit wisdom from now until Jesus comes or until you die. And then number three The third reason why they needed to do this is because that they would forfeit if they didn't the riches of God that he has for our lives, the spiritual riches and the eternal riches that he has for our lives now and in heaven. And so Paul says this issue is very serious because it has ramifications that not only affect your Christian walk in this life, but that will carry also into your experiencing of eternity itself. And so he begins now to give them reasons why they should listen to them in this. And it begins in the second half again of verse 17 when he says that Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, notice the contrast that the apostle Paul draws within that verse between worldly wisdom and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, which he is going to interject and say, talk of the wisdom of God. And so he's contrasting two different forms of wisdom uh, here in this verse that he's about to use as a platform to say to them that, listen, you're gonna forfeit the power of God within your life if you don't get this right. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom, very simply, is the proper application of knowledge. It's taking what you know and knowing what to do with what you know to bring about the best possible outcome. That's what wisdom is. And Paul is saying here that there are two different types of wisdom. There's a worldly wisdom upon which we can attempt to build our lives, and that will yield for us a certain type of power. And then there is also a godly wisdom which is contrasted from the world's wisdom. And we could build our lives upon that wisdom. And that's also gonna yield a particular type of power. And so Paul now contrasts these two wisdoms, worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. And he also contrasts the power that comes into a life as a result of giving yourself to one wisdom or the other. And he says very clearly that if we ascribe ourselves or give ourselves to worldly wisdom as the pattern upon which we wanna live, then we are going to be void of the power of the cross of Christ. We're not gonna have the power of God within our life. We're choosing one or the other. And so now he he develops what those wisdoms are in verse 18. He says, for the preaching or the message, if you have a new King James, the message of the cross is to them that perish, or those that are not saved, foolishness. Now, I remember what it felt like when I was building my life according to worldly wisdom to have this sentiment concerning the cross of Christ in my own heart and in my own life. Many of you have heard my story about how uh, I met my wife in high school and she was my girlfriend before either one of us were saved. And the Lord systematically began to save all of my friends and all of my girlfriends one by one. It just seemed like everyone around me, in my mind, they were dropping, they were falling. They were falling to Christ or falling for Christ. And I remember when Georgia got saved, it dealt a particular blow to me because she was just so special in my life. Even when I was in high school, there was a connection that we had that was just different than any other person that I'd ever experienced before. And when she told me that she'd become a Christian and I broke up with her for it, I I knew that I owed it to myself and to her to at least look into the things that she was preaching and sharing and saying to see if there was something to it. And I remember reading the Bible and going through and seeing a man puts his stick in the the Red Sea and the the sea opens up. And I read in the New Testament, a man throws seed on the ground and this is the way that the kingdom of God is. And I remember I took the Bible and I threw it at the wall and I said, this is foolishness. Who would trade their whole entire life for a book like this? And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't see it. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the message of the cross is to them that are perishing, foolishness. Now, that's a great indication of what was going on in my life at that time. I was perishing quickly, tailspin, out of control. But unto us which are saved, Paul says, it is the power of God. Now, for her at that time, and me a little bit later, once I finally did give my life to Christ, once I realized the power that was in the gospel of Jesus Christ, my life for his, his righteousness imputed to me and my sins translated onto him. And that now I have new life in him because of this grace that's been provided through the cross. Once that became real in my life, it was no longer foolishness that didn't make sense, but now it was power to do something in me that I could never do for myself following the ways and the wisdom of the world. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those that perish, but for us that are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, Paul says, quoting Isaiah chapter 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God speaking, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, the context of that quotation is extremely important. Because in Isaiah chapter 29, where God spoke these words to the children of Israel, the reason why God said it to them is because they were doing the very thing that the Corinthian Christians were doing. They were placing their faith upon the backs of the religious rulers of the day. Well, I go to synagogue. I go to temple. I go to Jerusalem each year at the times of the feast, and I offer up my sacrifice. And so because I do the sacraments and because I give my allegiance to these spiritual people, then therefore I'm saved. And what God said in response to that attitude that the people had is he says, I'm gonna purposely make it so that your life is frustrated and that the wisdom that you're heeding and the counsel that you're taking doesn't work because your eyes are in the wrong place. You're following the wrong people. You're doing it for the wrong reasons and therefore I'm not gonna bless your life and allow my power to be present with you because your allegiance is not with me. God would go on to say in that same chapter that their hearts are far from him even though they honor him with their lips in the things that they say. And so in the very context of what they were doing, Paul brings that into the present and he says, you guys mean well by your allegiance to Apollos and your allegiance to Peter and your allegiance to Paul. But because your eyes aren't on Christ, you're gonna miss the power of God within your life because he's not gonna bless your allegiance or your endeavor to become like someone else. The Bible says that we're to worship the Lord our God and him only are we to serve. And so he goes on then in verse 20 to to say, where then is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or the arguer, the debater of this world? I'll tell you where they are. They're on Fox News every couple of weeks, interrupting our lives, debating uselessly about (laughs) things that will mean nothing, even as the Bible here is telling us. He says, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, it doesn't matter how crafty it is, how creative it is, how ingenious it seems, God trumps the power of every bit of counsel that exists within the world and he can bring it to nothing in a heartbeat and he always will when that wisdom is not his wisdom that's been prescribed in his way. If you go to Barnes & Noble booksellers today or even log on to your tablet, you know, the bookstore part of it and you look at what is on the bestseller list, I guarantee you that you will find three things somewhere on the bestseller list. You will find a book about how to improve your financial situation within your life. You'll find a book about how to improve your marriage or your intimate relationships. And you will find a a book about your health and your well-being, your self-help, if you would, psychologically, physically, or otherwise. And the reason I can say that with such boldness is not because I looked at the bestseller list today because I didn't. I can say it boldly: is because you will always find a book about one of those three things, or uh, you know, a whole host of other things, on the bestseller list. Why? Because people are always looking for wisdom to try to make their life better in ways that they don't know how to make their own lives better. And so where they go is to worldly wisdom to try to find the answer. But here's the amazing thing about the bestseller list: it always changes. Have you noticed that the same authors are not on the bestseller list that were on it 10 years ago or five years ago or even five months ago? And the reason for that is because God says, I confound that wisdom and it will not work. It's not gonna profit you when you give your life to it. And here's why, verse 21. For after that or in that manner, in the wisdom of God, so now we're talking about God's wisdom, we bring that in for the first time, The world by its wisdom knew not God. Therefore, it pleased God by the foolishness and the word foolishness is what the world would call it, the foolishness of preaching or of the word preached or of the message to save them that believed. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you take the wisdom of the world as a how to save yourself, how to fix yourself, how to enrich yourself, how to beautify and ornament your marriage, how to improve your psychological well-being. You take all of that and everything that's said about that and all of the many fine points made about that, and then you contrast them with what God says is the answer, which is come to the cross of Jesus Christ, lay your life down there, and die with him who laid down his life for you, and God will take care of it. And when you place the multitudes of volumes and books that have been written on the one side and the simplicity of the message of the cross on the other. The one side looks over and says something that simple, something that foolish. And God says it pleased him that through the simplicity or the foolishness from the world's perspective of that message believed, God's chosen to save those that put their faith in him it says that he it pleased god by the foolishness of the message preached to save them that simply believe you put your faith in jesus christ and god will begin working his power within you to build and to do what you could never do for yourself he says for the jews require a sign in order for them to give their allegiance or profess their faith then they want to see a miraculous work they need to see some evidence of the supernatural within you He says that the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. And that was true in Athens. It was true in Corinth. They wanted a philosopher. They wanted an orator. They wanted someone that could speak into their lives and mesmerize them with their words and with their wisdom. He says, the Greeks want that. He says, but we, verse 23, preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, it's a stumbling block. The Jews who want to sign they hear the message of the cross and they say why in the world would a savior lay down his life why in the world would god go through all the trouble to redeem mankind through a cross there's nothing supernatural about it there's nothing glorious about it it's it's a means of execution it doesn't make sense why would we do that it's a stumbling block to them it flies in the face of what they were looking for And he says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. What merit is there in a cross? What merit is there in a savior who dies? What beautiful wisdom is there in any of that? It doesn't make any sense to us. Look at Plato, look at Socrates, look at the great philosophers that have come from our culture and our society. And you're saying that we should give our lives to a man who died on a cross? It doesn't make any sense to us. But then Paul, verse 24 On the other side of the unbelievers, he says, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, here's what Paul's saying is this, is that anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ and by doing so makes him the denominator of all that they are, that person is gonna experience the power of God within their life, and all things will be done within that life. All the things that for years and years and years and years you sought to do through the wisdom of men and it brought you nowhere and it accomplished absolutely nothing within your life. But when you put your faith in Jesus and he begins by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit to not only forgive your sin, but to now make you what he is seeking to make you, you're going to experience power in your life. And like Job said, he will perfect that which concerns you. Every area of your life, he is able to come into and he is able to work into when your heart is set completely upon him. And so the the foolishness of God, he says, is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so the conclusion that you come to when you contrast the wisdom of the world, which is impotent with the wisdom of God, which is all-powerful to save and to sanctify, here's the conclusion that you come to in verse 26. He says, for you see your calling, brethren and sistren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty not many noble are called. Now he doesn't say not any, he says not many. And the reason is because it's above them or it's beneath them rather. It's too low for the lofty to look down and say, well, that could maybe even possibly be the answer. Isn't God amazing that he would make salvation to be in such a way and to happen in such a way That there could be absolutely no intellect of man involved in the process at all. That there could be no merit in it whatsoever. He brought it as low as it could possibly go. God says that is the answer for all of life. And the reason why we look around the church and we see what we see. And we know what we see (laughs) when we look around the church. We see that there's not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise men after the flesh because god says has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and god has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised has god chosen yea and the things which are not that's what the bible has to say about you and me i hope you feel complimented why to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's what Paul's saying, is that when Christ is at rest within your heart and your eyes are fixed upon him and his sanctifying power is molding and shaping you into what you want to be, then you and I, who in the world's eyes are weak and base and foolish and untalented and unskillful and undesired, will see us possessing the power of, that they are seeking after and it brings them to nothing. It demonstrates that God's power is all and that man's power is none. And the amazing thing is that you and I can possess the blessing that all of the world is seeking after in every area of our life and we can possess it by simply looking to Christ crucified and by nothing else that's in us at all. And the reason why God made it this way, verse 29, he says that no flesh should glory in his presence there's not one person that will ever be able to boast about who they are or what they've become or what god has done within their life because everything that we will ever be is because of christ and him crucified and that even applies to a christian who places their faith or their trust in a spiritual leader someone other than jesus christ because god will not bless that we will watch others excel and abound whose eyes are on Christ and we ourselves will be stunted because God will confound it. He won't let it happen. No flesh will glow. Well, I, I bought so-and-so's book and I followed his, his 20-step plan and I went through his studies and I listened to everything he said every, every day and, and God got me through with it. It's never gonna be that. The answer is gonna be God. How did you get where you are? God. God got me where I am. Where did that talent that you have come from? God. Where did that position? God. Where did that money? God. It came from God. That's it. It's Christ's name crucified. He did it in my life. I can take no glory. There's nothing in it that I have done at all. And so he says in verse 30, but of him, not of Apollos, not of Paul, not of Cephas, of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and wisdom. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption now if you break those things down there's not one thing in all of life that doesn't fall under the banner or category of one of those things he makes us all but it comes as we're in allegiance and in communion with him that according as it is written he that glories let him glory in the Lord. Quoting from Jeremiah where he says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor in the strong man in his strength, but let him that glories glory in the Lord. That's the only thing that will ever work out in our life. So now what Paul does is he completes this thought before he moves on to wisdom proper, still talking about the power of God within our life. He gives an example from his own life in ministry. We like examples, don't we? It helps us to understand what it looks like. And so he does that in verse one through five of chapter two. Notice what Paul says. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, me, Paul, whom you are pledging your allegiance to, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. So the first thing that he testifies about in his own life concerns his speech. And he says to them, I purposefully did not impress you with eloquence and intelligence. I went out of my way. Now, Paul was a great orator. When you read in the book of Acts, the speeches that he gave right out off the cuff, you realize that he had the ability to impress with the things that he said. But he says, I purposefully didn't use my eloquence when I was preaching the gospel and when I was teaching you. My speech was not with um, was, was not with wisdom declaring unto you um, the testimony of God. Second of all, he says in verse two, for I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul says concerning my content, the content of my messages is that I purposefully didn't use high and lofty illustrations. I didn't compare salvation to you know, biological systems of God's engineering. I didn't do that. I purposefully kept it as simple as I could and I gave you the simple gospel. I made the content of it very small. Number three in verse three, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Third of all, he says, concerning my presence. I didn't dress in a way wherein when I walked in the room, you would say, wow, now that's a guy that I wanna listen to. I didn't present and conduct myself in a way wherein I would stand before you and you would say, you know, he really belongs as a news anchor or as like the White House press spokesman or, or something like that. He just has a presence. There's something about it. Paul says, I purposefully, purposefully, when I came into your midst, I made myself look as weak, as lowly as I could. I was with you in fear and in much trembling. My presence among you was very simple. And then he goes on Then the fourth thing, he says concerning his agenda, what I wanted, my motive in verse four. He says, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. The word enticing is the word persuasive, meaning that I didn't get up and say, I'm gonna use the absolute best argument I have that proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that the gospel is true he didn't do that i didn't i purposefully did not do anything that would be persuasive using man's wisdom to try to persuade or sell you something but rather the contrast but in demonstration of the spirit now where does the spirit come from it comes from god it doesn't come from him it comes from god paul said i don't want you to see me i don't want you to hear me i don't want you to be impressed with me i want what happens when what i'm saying is going into your ears to be a work of the holy spirit of god doing something in your life because it doesn't make sense otherwise why would i listen to this guy why would i care what he has to say but yet for some reason i can't look away for some reason he has me with everything that he's saying For some reason, the words that are being spoken are going beyond the surface of my mind and my intellect and they're going deeper and they're touching something that's never been reached before. And there's something going on inside of me that I've never felt. But yet why is it coming from him? And the reason Paul says that he did it that way is in verse five, he says, so that your faith, so that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that it would not stand in the wisdom of men, but it would stand in the power of God. That when you leave the meeting where you heard me preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to you, you would not talk about how impressive I was or how simply I broke things down or how eloquent i delivered the message or how cleverly I persuaded so many or the size of the altar call or any of those other things. He said, I wanted to be as invisible as I possibly could so that the things that went into your ears and then into your heart, you would know came from God and not from anything that was produced at all by man. So in closing, what is, and the worship team can come, what is the wisdom of God in all of this? Because we saw the contrast between the world's wisdom and the wisdom of God, and we understand what the world's wisdom is. But what is God's wisdom? What is God's strategy in making the gospel and salvation and sanctification in life this way? The proper application of knowledge. Why God is it through the foolishness of preaching? Number one is that it humbles prideful man to the point that he realizes that there's absolutely no intellect involved in the saving of souls. There is not one person in heaven that will be there because they were smart enough to give their life to Jesus Christ. There is no intellect involved in salvation. It's a matter of faith. You either believe it or you don't. The second point where God's wisdom comes through in all of this is that it makes everyone and anyone usable by God with absolutely no limitation at all whatsoever. Every single one of us can declare the simple message of the cross to anyone. And what God says is that the simpler that message is delivered, and by the simpler the person who delivers that message, the more potential there is for the power of God to show up behind that message. And that's an incredible equalizer, isn't it? Because sometimes we think that we cannot be used by God because we don't possess the type of intellect that we see in someone else. We don't have the type of eloquence of a Billy Graham or the same flash-firing mind as someone who can debate and answer questions. But every single one of us can share the simple gospel that God so loved you and you were so far from him that he gave his son to take your place in death. And by putting your faith in him, he will give you a place of life and a place in his kingdom for all of eternity. But you need to repent of your sins and turn your life over to him. It's a foolish message when you compare it with what the world would teach. But God says, I'll anoint that message in the lips of anyone who brings that message to another person. It actually makes it easier for the one that has no natural ability. Because Paul the apostle had a ton of ability and it was harder for him. Look at what we just read, what he had to go through in order to bring the power of God through the gospel. He had to take off his eloquence, take off his commanding presence, take off his intelligence. He had to take all of it off. The third thing, God's wisdom in this, is that it removes all pressure from those who serve Christ in any way from feeling like they have to measure up to anything. One of the things that can happen, and it happens to me, is that I'll I'll give a message, whether here or somewhere else, Saturday morning or, or otherwise, and, and and I'll like just have this feeling, this sense. It's what we live for to to let the let the curtain back a little bit us preachers. This sense that the spirit of God is just using it. It's not always like that, but there are times when you just feel like like God is just you you know you just feel like you're sailing. You're not flapping your wings. You're just in a current. God's just moving. It's 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 awesome, you know. And people come up to you after and they're like, man, that you spoke to me tonight. It was right from God. And, and you're going, yeah, great. That's the best thing in the world and the worst thing in the world. It's the worst. Because the next day you go, how in the world am I going to do that again? <laughs> and you begin to go, oh no. Like, and, and, and you can almost guarantee that next week is going to be a flop because you're going to get yourself into this whole thing. But listen, if you can get what God is saying to us here, it removes all of that. Because what I've also discovered is that you can feel like you're firing on all eight cylinders and you're putting everyone to sleep. And you can also feel like God's not with you at all and he's leaving you out there to hang to dry. And everyone in the room is being spoken to by God in such a deep and intimate way. Here's the point, is that God is the one that takes the word that's being spoken, does something with it, brings attention in the person's heart and then uses it in their life to sanctify them or enrich them or beautify them in some way, it's all of God. And that takes the pressure off of us of thinking that we have to measure up to some standard in it. And that was the wisdom of God in the whole thing. And then number four concerning the wisdom uh, in this thing is that it automatically pulls my eyes off of someone else's ministry or off of someone else's progress in the Christian faith, and it puts my eyes only on Jesus. Because I realize that what he wants to do, he wants to do it in my life, not what he wants to do in their life in my life. If God wanted two of someone else, he would have made two of someone else and none of you. But he didn't, he made you. And he wants to do something in your life and he's waiting for your eyes to be fixed upon him alone to perform the work that he wants to do within your life. And thus the power of the cross in my life is that it's all of him and it's none of me. It's all of him and it's none of my attempts to be like someone else whom I admire in the Christian faith. It's not by might, it's not by power, It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And when our lives come into that place where we're leaning completely upon Christ, the result will be that there will be an unlimited source of power to live the abundant life that Jesus wants for each one of us to have. And so may our eyes be fixed upon him. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for what you've spoken to us through the word. And I ask that you would take now, Lord, and that you would apply it, and that you would challenge us, Lord, and where there are divisions in our own hearts because we've taken the denominator that matters and we've replaced it with something else. We ask, Lord Jesus, that tonight you would become the Lord of our lives again, that we would come back to the simplicity of the cross, and that our lives would be founded there, never to be moved away, and that your power would be present in our lives because of it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.